Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Mary Lou is the co-founder and COO of Juni. Did you know in the UK each year, 11 billion pieces of single-use plastic get thrown away from lunch on the go? And even green alternatives like compostable or recyclable packaging are not as environmentally friendly as consumers think, as Mary explains later in the episode. So, after spending time in the food industry and seeing the harmful impact of single-use packaging, Mary wanted to create a scalable long-term solution to the problem. She co-founded Juni, who wants to make a reuse the default for food packaging. So keep listening to hear how they plan to achieve their goal for replacing 25 million single-use containers by 2025. Hey Mary, great to have you on the show today. Hi Craig, good to be here. Awesome. So, um, yeah, do my research. I noticed you'd worked in the food tech space for, I think, like six years. And I know you've got like a, a personal and specific interest in like sustainability. I just wonder if you could give some background in terms of like what's always interested you to working in this space and ultimately led you to starting up a business in the kind of food tech sustainability space. Yeah, sure. Um, just a little bit of background on myself. Um, from the States, I moved to London in 2019. Um, but prior to uh, being in the UK, I worked at HelloFresh um, in an operations role. Um, I was really lucky to join the company at a time when it was still growing quite a bit. So got a chance to help build um, lots of different operating practices within the business, in particular in uh, logistics and in packaging. And everybody who has had a meal kit, which is maybe a lot of people these days, um, knows definitely that there's a lot of single-use waste that comes along with it. And even back in, you know, 2017, 2018, we did get a lot of complaints around the the packaging. Um, and it was a thought at the time because customers would suggest, you know, mailing their ice packs back to us, mailing their packaging back to us, but it just didn't make sense for that type of model where, um, you know, there were millions of customers all throughout the US, but only a couple of sites. And so the distance that it needed to travel was just didn't make sense for um, you know the ability for it to be reused, um, but obviously that thought was really in my mind as um, the years carried on. It wasn't a core focus of mine at HelloFresh at the time, um, but I also come from uh, a family that you know never wasted anything. I think my my parents were always saving their jars. Um, and reusing them for pickling or other purposes that was more for financial reasons. So the idea that you shouldn't waste things always, you know, obviously came naturally to me, but um, wasn't really clear until I moved to London and met my co-founder, Caroline, how that might be a business area. Um, and for, for us, I think what we saw that really rang true in the last year or so is that the cost of single use has really gone up. So not only financially, but also from an environmental perspective, I think um, it just became a lot clearer to the general public that, you know, making something, using it only once and then throwing it away is um, not a sustainable model for anyone. And um, we, I think we've now reached a point where a lot of governments are uh, 
are starting to pass laws and taxes on that topic. And also I think the, con- the general consumer is um, more sensitive to this as a topic as well. 100% yeah like I, I know it's something that I always look at like wherever I go and, and whatever I buy I'm like oh I wonder what kind of packaging this is going to come with and always like a big tick in my head when I see it's something that's reusable or recyclable or compostable um you started to talk a little bit there and I, I like to explore the kind of the, the problem space one works in so talk to you a bit more about kind of single-use plastic in kind of like food packaging um and I know specifically with junior it's focused on kind of like the the kind of takeaway space um I mean, in terms of the problem as it is right now, like how much, if we take London or or like any kind of geography, like how much of the the packaging is still single-use plastic versus like better options, I guess? I, we, we typically quote this, uh, stat that we found, which is that, um, there's 11 billion pieces of single-use plastic that is thrown away every single year that's just in the uk and actually that's just for lunch on the go obviously it's quite hard to get the um these stats in a very easy to format way but i'm sure it's not um so surprising to you that most of the things that you see in the rubbish bin are food packaging and once caroline actually had pointed that out to me in an early conversation it was maybe the one thing i could not stop noticing i would go to every you know, rubbish bin and be like, oh, this is filled with food packaging. Um, and I think one of the reasons, I know you didn't ask about this directly, but sometimes people ask about, you know, food packaging. Well, if it's looks like it's made of paper, can I recycle it? Um, if it's made of plastic, can I recycle it? And um, I think people have some amount of wish cycling that, that happens when they throw something that is... Um, food packaging away in the recycling bin because a lot of it does have a lot of mixed materials that isn't easy to recycle and also the food contamination makes it really hard to recycle as well so obviously i'm i'm guessing not everyone is um thoroughly scrubbing their their single-use <laughs> plastics before they throw them out but um even a little bit of contamination can be um can make that whole batch of plastics not recyclable um, and I, I do this myself, even as someone who is like in the business, I don't always thoroughly wash everything before I throw it out. No, I, I don't think a lot of people really think about it and just assume that it's okay because it's recyclable, whatever's in it, it can just, yeah. Um, and you, you kind of touched on earlier that actually it cost is becoming a problem as well with single use plastics, as well as the environmental kind of cost. Um, but traditionally, like what was the reason why single plastic, single use plastic was adopted throughout the industry as like the standards like was it originally so cheap or was it convenience or just an easy material to use like, what was the reason that it started out um i think the reasons that we typically point to is that the the cost of plastic was pretty cheap so plastic is created as a byproduct of um oil production and if you know i won't go too deep into that topic because obviously that's a whole can of worms on its own <laughs> but um i think you know, it wasn't so long ago, like maybe our grandparents' generation or even our parents' generation when they were were older, when not everything was in single use, but actually single use items on its own does help to facilitate convenience. So we typically point to two things. One is that um, globalization of supply chains and everything made it pretty cheap to produce single use items somewhere else, ship it back to where you were using it. Um, 
and we're not really, I, I, I guess, the end of the supply chain in terms of thinking about the waste. All of that was being um, not really accounted for in the the cost of the single use items, and then. As single-use facilitated convenience, there then became more and more of a demand on on the consumer side for convenience-driven type of goods. So, um, you know, I don't know how old many fast casual restaurants are, but I, I don't think it was again very common probably 50 years ago for you to go out grab a prep or a similar type of concept for lunch and then just throw that away. So it definitely enabled convenience driven services, but then we see that that then sort of fuels the consistent use of single use. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and, um, you know, as someone who's out there every day, kind of banging this drum, speaking to consumers, speaking to businesses, like it does feel like the tide is starting to shift in the right direction. Do you feel that's really powered by, or like driven by the consumers and what they want from businesses? Or is it more of like a business actually without that, just wanting to be more responsible or sustainable? Or is it like a government policy thing where a lot of them are having to start shifting in this direction? Um, I think it's actually a mix of all three, definitely starting more from the consumer side, but I think you need um, a general consensus more from the consumer side that uh, the businesses really have to believe that the consumers care about it. And so um, it is important for first the consumer to care about it and enough of them for it to be impactful for the business. Um, we are seeing that a lot of businesses do think about this topic. They know that sustainability is important. Um, and the, and, you know, businesses aren't just like a, a, um, foreign entity made up of, you know, whatever, like these, the people who do care about sustainability as, as a topic do tend to work in these type of corporations as well. So some of the biggest uni supporters that we've seen in terms of companies just tend to be driven by a couple of people within the company who are really keen to see this issue being solved for their office. And it really only takes a couple people per office or per company to um, drive forward some decisions. But I think we're, we also see that younger people, Gen Z, younger populations do also care more about it. So um, very hopeful looking forward as well that. Um, consumer sentiment will be more positive towards these types of sustainability topics. And then, of course, almost um, it, you need some amount of uh, those consumers and businesses to care about it in order for government to, to be able to enact a wide-scale policy change. So there is some amount of, um, let's say, like the majority of people have to believe in it for government to pass policies that would then... Um, maybe let's call it force the last 20% or 30% of people who wouldn't really care about it that much to change their standards as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Makes it makes a lot of sense. And uh, on that point, I think that sets the scene really nicely. Can you check, can you talk to us about what Juni does, what it is? Yes, of course. So Juni uh, provides reusable packaging as a service. We focus on food operators, so food packaging, as we, we already talked about, and um, specifically, actually, we're focused a lot on dine-in type of opportunities where people are eating and then throwing things away at the same type of place. So um, if you think of office canteens or even food markets, um, those are um, our ideal clients, at least for now. Nice. And in terms of like how it 
it works. So if, if I'm in an office space or dining out, like, am I taking the, the reusable container from the office space out with me? Or is it more about when I go to these places where I'm, I'm buying stuff that normally would have different packaging that they have the reusable containers available for me or, or both? What we found is the most effective way is actually to make it a default option for people. So um, rather than you know, go to your office, convince every Craig or Mary to change their, their behaviors, what we find is that um, if we actually have the canteen operator, as an example, just make all of the items by default in reusable items um, and making it convenient for people to return the reusable packaging um, within that same space, then we can actually get a reuse model that is very similar to uh, people's expectations of how single use would work, which is that you get it by default, you don't have to pick it, and also you throw it away somewhere where it, it then gets picked up and you don't really have to worry about everything in between. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So I, was, I wasn't sure and I was thinking, well, if they do have to go and get the container themselves, think ahead before they go out somewhere. That's a hard habit to break. Whereas obviously what you're describing is very convenient, very easy. It doesn't alter anything they do actually. So it's really, really clever in that way. Um, I know that you launched during the pandemic, which obviously was for long periods of time, people weren't going out, they weren't going to the office. Um, so it must've been tough in some ways. Like what, what were the early stages of Juni? Like what were you doing? What were you focused on to get the business off the ground when there were those limitations in place? I think one of the things that we really, uh, obviously with a, a startup, there's a million things that you need to actually get going in order to figure out how exactly it's going to work. So in the early days, it was, it was also about building up our operations. So finding the right logistics and washing partners that would be willing to work with us, figuring out what it is that restaurants or canteen operators or whoever would want to actually see in terms of the packaging. So going out in the market, seeing what was available because we weren't really going to manufacture something ourselves um, probably ever, but definitely not at the early stages when we were just getting a couple hundred. And so when we were starting out during the pandemic, there is a lot of just speaking to customers about what they do, um, what types of packaging that they would uh, want to see and how they might use it in a theoretical sense. And then, of course, you have to just launch some amount of pilots and see how that would work. So actually, the, the model you were describing in terms of having it be takeaway is where we we started. Um, but what we found was that it was hard to engage people to change their habits in the right way and in a scalable way. And so we shifted our focus more towards um, getting operators to change all of their packaging instead of getting the individual to change some small amount of behavior. Um, it definitely was tough, but obviously we were running lots of experiments. And so when you're, you're, you don't need a ton of people to, to run those types of experiments. Um, but now that people are, are definitely more back in the office, we're, we're seeing an influx of demand also from return to work schemes or canteen operators, those types of people who are, uh, now super interested in doing something sustainable now that everyone's back at work. Yeah, I bet. And you, you mentioned uh, kind of like two two focused customers. You have the, the workspaces and the food operators. Like, did you start with one initially to, to like test and prove the concept or have you gone kind of straight into both <laughs> from day one? We, we started mostly with the um, companies because what we, we saw was that uh, 
right now it's it's not really possible for us to match single use costs because single use doesn't really embed the um let's call it the the reuse or the waste side of it into the cost structure so someone else is responsible for that and where reuse uh, becomes more expensive is obviously we have to get the items back and do some, clean it do something with it and then return it back to where it needs to go whereas your single use item doesn't include the cost of your rubbish and recycling within that so because we knew it would be hard to match single use prices we knew we needed to bring someone else into the mix that was outside of just restaurants um what has shifted also in the last year is actually lots of uh climate change driven supply chain issues and um, new taxes that have been brought into the market has actually driven up the cost of single use quite a bit and also as we're learning about how we're scaling the model um, we're able to bring the cost of genie down quite significantly and no matter how much we want to shout about like sustainability is great um, it can't be significantly more expensive than alternative options in order for this to be a super scalable model. So um, we were looking at who exactly would the, the payers of the model be. We started definitely with the corporates and found kind of a sweet spot in cante canteens. And yeah. um, we're going to be working with some food markets over the next year to bring um, wide change in in these types of dine-in food markets as well awesome and to talk about the container itself for a moment like it from what i can see it looks really smart well designed nice and kind of clean not in the sense that obviously they're all clean but you know like <laughs> nice clean design on it what what were the what were the ideas in terms of like when you were looking at the container itself which obviously is a key thing it has to look a certain way and, and function a certain way what were the key things you wanted to focus on when you were designing the container so what we what was important for us was actually was that something um it was something that was available off the shelf so something that we could buy today because the manufacturing lead time of of uh producing a physical product is typically quite long and has a lot of startup costs so we didn't necessarily want to dive too far into designing our own packaging because someone um uh, obviously other people have built lots of expertise in this area so that was the number one yeah. thing for us is figuring out what existed already um then it was looking at really the material so obviously uh you can plastic is actually a good option for if you're planning to reuse it many times um but there's also ceramic porcelain items like dishes that you would have at home um stainless steel uh or well, they don't really make plates out of aluminum but uh, those types of options were, were also one and of course glass um i do have some glass Tupperware that I use in my own house. But um, when you consider and map out all the parties that maybe need to be involved, like if you're moving it from place to place, someone is dropping it in a return bin, um, there are some ones that rule themselves out quite easily. Like glass isn't a great material because obviously if you drop it in a bin, it's probably quite easy to break. Yep. Um, and then it doesn't have the environmental benefits, right? Because you're only using that once or twice if it breaks very easily. Um, stainless steel was one where actually it was quite heavy. So, um, the cost and the ability to transport it becomes, um, uh, one that is counterbalanced with, uh, how many you can store all in one place. Um, and I think it, w which then made like a, a more durable type of plastic, one of the better solutions for us. So, um, then it was looking at, you know, what were the available options? 
how would someone perceive it? We didn't want to buy something that was um, for reuse that was too similar to the ones that looked like they were single use. We didn't want the consumer to be yeah. confused about whether it sh- is for throwaway or not. Um, and so we ended up choosing this uh, rather thicker material. The containers is, themselves are a lot more expensive than your single use disposable ones. Um, but of course, if you spread that out over, you know, hundreds of uses, it, it's not very much. Got it. And, and in terms of how the, the revenue model works, like do are the customers buying the containers from you or is it more of like a renting scheme where they rent them from you and there's like an ongoing subscription cost for the, the like cleaning and logistics aspect of it? We, we try and model it as close to single use as possible. So the way that packaging buyers now would go out and buy bowls, if you're a restaurant operator, you'd probably go on some website like Nisbet's or somewhere else and look for the container that they need and they would just be able to buy them and get, um, you know, 300 at a time for a single use type of cost. And so that's exactly how we, we, um, sell to our user as well. So it's not necessarily to the end user. It was probably to, um, if you're buying food again from your office canteen, it's probably the canteen operator that is making those decisions and paying for it. And you probably indirectly pay for it through the cost of your food, but, um, yep. they're the ones making the decision. And so we work with them to figure out how many and what type it is that they need. And then we work out, um, the right cadence of deliveries and pick up for their needs. So it could be um, a couple times a week. It could be every day. It could be once a week, depending on how um, often they need, uh, they want things to be picked up and how many it is that they're using over the course of the week. Brilliant. And, and with that, the, the drop off points and then the, like the, the cleaning of the containers, is that managed by Junie or is that, is that managed by the customers and you just connect them with the right partners? So we do manage it at this point in time. So we um, manage all of the pickups. Um, we use third parties to do the pickups. And then we also have a couple partners to do the washing as well. So that is something that um, we facilitate. Got it. Got it. And is, is, is that then part of the uh, just the packaging price or is that like a separate add-on? If you see what I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's all part of the, that's part of the price. Um, it's how you would think about it is obviously you would expect if you bought a single use item that it would be clean to you and then you could use (laughs) it however you wanted. So again, that's all part of the price. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, makes sense. And then kind of, well, just going back to, I guess, earlier and talking about, you know, the, the issues with single-use plastic packaging and starting to see more options on the market. And I guess the thing that I see mainly as consumers is like the kind of paper plant-based options, which are, you know, pa- you know marketed at least as biodegradable, recyclable, um, compostable. I just wondered, like, how do they stack up against Juni? Like, is there an environment environmental benefit of using Juni or do you just see them as two great different options to solving the single-use plastic 
problem? There are definitely good options, I would say, for different use cases. So for um, even compostable options, you have to consider that uh, those are natural resources that you're growing out of the ground somewhere. They're typically made of um, a sugarcane byproduct. We don't grow those in the UK, to my knowledge. So they're being grown yeah. elsewhere, um, being manufactured typically elsewhere, or could be in the UK, but some amount of materials being brought in. Um, it's a lot of energy is being used to produce those items. And it's being shipped to the end producer, so the packaging purchaser. Um, and then even where it is biodegradable, that typically doesn't mean that you can throw it away in your um, home rubbish. And it, you would expect for it to be biodegradable. It needs specific conditions that are commercially controlled. Um, and there's only a couple of those throughout the UK, to my knowledge, which means that you need a specific waste stream in order to make sure that is properly composted. A lot of actually offices and, and people that we talked to who did tell us, you know, we buy compostable containers. We would always ask them, you know, that's really great. Who does your composting pickup? And it would typically be crickets. So you can kind of tell yeah. that like people have the best intentions. They don't always know what needs to be done. Um, and maybe they weren't aware that it wouldn't be um compostable just by throwing it directly in in the rubbish waste streams that you already had um and so that ends up being can be a bit problematic if you haven't thought about how you want that to work um i think there is still definitely a space for single use compostable items which we think are better than single use plastic items where if you imagine we're actually working mostly with people where um, the point at which we're washing it offsite is pretty close to the point in which the food items are being packaged and then used. So it wouldn't work, for example, if you were to buy something at Gatwick Airport, fly off halfway across the world, you probably just want to dispose of it there. Or even if you're not going that far, but you're, you're going some distance away from where it's being produced, like in your supermarket chains, maybe your um, items are being produced hundreds of miles away from the point at which it's being sold. It would be hard to get those back to the place where it needs to be to be reused. So in those instances, um, I would think that single-use compostable packaging would probably be the best option as long as the composting infrastructure is there as well. Yeah, really, really interesting. I, I think that's the problem is like, as consumers... It's hard. You want to do the right thing, but I think there's still a lack. There's, there's still a lack of education and awareness around some of these how things actually work. And just because it says something that look, in green writing on a on a piece of packaging, that's not necessarily actually great for the environment, um, unless you know how to, like you said, to actually kind of dispose of it in the right way. Yeah, so. exactly. And people ask even offhand. People will say like, "Well, my coffee cup. It's made out of paper, so I can recycle it, right?" Well, it's. I mean, actually the reason that that doesn't break down like other liquids or if you were to put liquid in a cardboard box, it probably would disintegrate. The reason yes. your coffee cup doesn't do that is because it's lined with something. And when it's lined with stuff that actually makes it really challenging to recycle because they obviously have to get the liner off. And that's not something necessarily you shouldn't need to know about as a, an end consumer, but um, you can tell there's a lot of uh, where the perception of how green something is is definitely 
not in line with how green it actually is. 100%. And next, I was just going to chat to you a little bit about your like funding, because I know you raised your pre-seed at the end of last year. Um, I wondered about two questions, like, yeah, what was that experience like for you? And secondly, like, what advice would you give to other founders looking to raise their pre-seed funding? Um, yeah, I'll I'll talk a bit about the experience. So um, I'll first caveat it to say that uh, we raised our funding in the summer of last year, August of last year, um, and obviously the world and the markets and the funding market in particular is in quite a different place, and so. Um, some of the things that maybe were true for us at the time were um, are maybe not so true now. We raised a pretty small round. It was um, 250k pounds. Uh, so half of it was done by Sustainable Ventures and the other half through Angels. So um, I mentioned I used to work at HelloFresh and my old boss at HelloFresh, who's currently the CEO of the US, invested in that round as well as some of um, just personal friends and family invested. Um, for a smaller round, I would say it's a little bit easier to um, find those smaller angels who just believe in you and believe in the idea and whatever it might become. Um, we're actually looking at our next funding round now. And when you're in the, let's call it um, upwards of a million or above that category, then you're looking at more institutional type of investors. And that's actually a different uh, a, a different set of skills, different set of pitches that you would need to prepare for and make. And so, um, last year was a little bit more, uh, we had this initial idea. We had a couple of pilots and were able to tap into our personal networks to, to get some funding. Um, and sustainable ventures as well backs a lot of early stage climate, uh, Precede companies, um, and they um, typically will fund up to I think 150k for smaller companies. So that's a great option if if you're UK based and you're a climate tech startup. Yeah, awesome. And uh, yeah, with that money, um, still like I know it's small compared to some numbers you see thrown around, but it's still a meaningful amount of money, especially yeah. at pre seed. Like, what, what what did that allow you to do as a business? Where was the money spent? Mostly on hiring people to help us with uh, all of the things that we wanted to do. So um, we brought in our CTO um, and. A designer. We also actually were lucky enough to get an Innovate UK grant to help fund some of that as well. So that was complementary to the uh, pre-seed funding that we raised. Um, that's a whole other type of funding <laughs> strategy that I won't necessarily go into right now, but um, that allowed us to bring in a couple of people to help us really expand when we were targeting more restaurants specifically, go out you know, door to door to the different restaurants and talk to them about Junie. Um, and then as well on the sales side, really focusing on um, getting more companies aware, onboarded. Um, and then as well, there's a, not a huge cost, but some amount of containers that we need to buy and have ready for when someone wants to see it, they want to start because they don't want to theoretically know about what the containers would be like. They want to have a sample which they can test their food in and see how um, it feels. So mostly used towards hiring people to further the idea and to get more customers on board. And um, 
we're mostly selling to B2B. So well, 100% to B2B. And you can, I'm, if you have any experience in B2B, it's quite a long sales cycle. So a lot of work to have lots of conversations, um, which can end up in bigger contracts, but just takes a long time to stand up. Yeah. Got it. And and I saw that your your goal is to replace 25 million single-use containers by 2025. Um, yeah, in terms of the next like year or two, what, what do you need to get right or get in get in place to make sure that you achieve that goal in a few years' time? Well, I guess uh putting the other funding aside, it's definitely, I would say, um getting a very scalable model in place is really important for us. And what that means is not just focusing on specific places in London that can pay a sustainability premium to get um, to replace their single use with reuse, but actually trying to get the price of Junies as close to single use as possible um, and making sure that that type of services available to as many types of partners as possible. So we do actually get a lot of inbounds from places that we can't service. So really also thinking about how do we expand beyond the current set of operating logistics and washing partners that we maybe have in London and how do we incentivize people who probably do have the capacity and the equipment and, um, and the desire to do this outside of London, because it's not as though um, eating food or throwing away single-use items is limited to the M25 as a problem. No, definitely not. But you have to start somewhere, and it makes sense <laughs> yeah. to start in the most like geographically dense area possible. So, cool. Um, moving on to the next section, which is chatting to you more personally about like your journey as a founder. Um, I know you've co-founded the business. Um, I was keen to understand like, how did you meet your co-founder? And I guess everyone has a different process for figuring out if you're the right people to be co-founding a business together. So I just wondered if, yeah, what that process looked like as well. For, for us, my, I met my co-founder through, um, we were both doing our masters at London business school. Um, she had come from very different background in M&A at Deloitte. And she, she's actually also from the US. Um, but in her spare time outside of actually doing that work, she was, she started her office green team and she transitioned their office away from single use cups to reusable cups. So she had had this very tangible experience of trying to convince these, um, different people involved in these types of decisions and moving over to reuse. And so when she actually came to, to LBS and she had this idea around reuse, um, she didn't really necessarily have any operations, supply chain, um, or frankly, startup experience. Um, and so when we started talking about the idea of Junie, it was actually based mostly on shared interest in sustainability. I think um, we were just talking about different cool things that we saw like shampoo bars or she had this um, aluminum shampoo that was infinitely recyclable and sharing tips like that where we just thought it was interesting to explore this idea of reuse. Um, it wasn't, I know there's probably different ways that where you could evaluate whether a co-founder is the right person for you. But for us, I think it was important that um, we were going to be spending a lot of time together and we were going to be, you know, sharing ideas. Did we have the right complementary skill sets? And also, did we enjoy spending time with each other? We're probably the 
two main things that we both looked at in um, deciding whether it would be a good idea to have a specifically both of us as co-founders, but also to even work together on the business. Um, I ha- we do have some friends that are solo founders and uh, I will say that I'm infinitely grateful to have a co-founder who I really trust and who I get along with because um, it can be pretty lonely and it definitely can be really challenging, like your highest highs and your lowest lows. So it's great to have someone who, um, yeah, again, you trust and get along with to share those experiences and to be there for those for really specific, maybe gripes that you have that only your co-founder would understand. Yeah, no, I, I pretty much every co-founder I speak to um, could never imagine doing it by themselves. And they just hugely appreciate having other people, even if it's one other person to, to be building with. And then you speak to solo founders and most of them will say like, what's my biggest mistake or what would I do differently? I'd co-found. <laughs> um, so makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, when you look back, I, I know it probably still feels like, you know, it's really still the start of the journey. There's still a huge amount that you want to achieve and, and want to do with Juni, but when you look back over the first first couple of years, like what, what's like the proudest moment? What's something that sticks out in your head as like a really positive, like, oh wow, like, I love when that happened or? Uh, I think we, I think we, we brought on a really great team that really cares about this as an issue. And I think hiring obviously for a lot of founders is a really difficult thing. Um, and you can definitely hire for a skill set or someone who is um, really good at a specific thing that you need done at that specific point in time. But so much has changed for us over the last year that I think what we found is actually having people who just care about the issue is uh, probably the most important thing. And I um, can't remember which exact one of our team members said this, but I just remember one of them had come in on a Monday and said, Okay, I've been thinking about this all weekend. And while I was washing the dishes, this is a and and I forget the exact idea. I think it was Rex, our head of design. He had he had come in on a Monday and said, I've been thinking about this all weekend. Um, and this is what I think we should do. And it was one of those times when you're like, Oh, you also think about this all weekend? Because I think about this all the time, but it's also it's my business and um it's it feels really rewarding when um, you know that you're not alone in caring about the issue, but you've also found the right team member when uh, they can't help but think about what the potential solutions for this type of problem are. Not because you're forcing them to, not because we've said, come in on Monday with all these ideas. It's just you just can't help but think about how you might solve the problem. Yeah, totally. I, I don't think anything beats kind of mission alignment. And when people truly care and believe in what you're trying to achieve, then that stuff all naturally happens, like you said, without being like forced or anything. Um, something you said a minute ago about kind of the highest of the highs, the lowest of the lows. Um, focus on the lowest of the lows. Like, I, again, you know, you see all the positive stuff in the news, but the, the reality is that most of the time it's really brutal as a founder. How do you manage your own like mental well-being? Like, what, what works for you, Mary, when it comes to your mental health? I, I mean, I do lots of things. Um, one is I, I do meditate. It's something that I don't do all the time, but it's one of those things that I definitely notice more mental clarity when I do do it. Um, try to do that every morning when I can um, and try not to fall asleep if, I'm try- if I am trying do it in the morning. 
Um, another thing is I do, you know, I do go see a therapist. A lot of my friends do that. Um, not necessarily just founder friends, but I think more people of the same age range as me do it and are pretty open about it. And that's something also that I've shared with my team that, you know, that's something that I do on Thursday morning. And if they want to take time out of their day to uh, seek help in whatever way they, they want to, whether it is, you know, just taking some time out so that they can go pick up their kids or, um, go see a therapist. That is something that they can do for them. Um, and then I think there is also this tendency of just doing as much as possible. And as an American, I think I find it hard to take so much time off, but actually I find that after I come back from having a bit of a break, I, I end up having better ideas, being more helpful, being more productive. And that, um, the number of hours you work is not necessarily correlated or usually is not correlated into the quality of the output of the work, especially if it's more, um, not like physically doing tasks, but mentally thinking about how you're going to achieve something. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and then finally, just want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, building a, you know, what I'd class as like a tech for good business. You're doing something positive in the world. Um, and you mentioned obviously that a big part of the, the pre-seed round have been, been used for hiring and bringing the right people in. So I just wondered like, what is it that you focused on so that when, when a new person joins Junior, they're like, wow, like this is what it's about. This is what the company stands for. Like, how have you gone about putting that into place? I think for us, we really wanted to understand the, um, we were quite clear about what our mission was. So we tried to make it as tangible as possible. We try to put a number behind it. Um, hopefully we will achieve that 25 million number, but, um, I think you can sense that it's not the number itself that is important, but actually, um, what it is that we as a company are focused on. So we're trying to reduce single use waste. Um, doesn't talk necessarily about how we will achieve that because um, we have some idea of how we're going to do it now, but that might evolve over the next couple of years. Um, and so when we were looking at bringing people on and also in the first couple of, of um, months, we try and make it clear exactly what the mission is, but also make it clear that how we're going to get there is not necessarily set in stone. We do a quarterly OKR process. And as part of that, we also reflect on what did we do wrong last quarter? What sort of new things do we want to try this quarter? And it's really important for us as a team that everybody also uh, feels as though they have a say in what's going on. And that actually when people do have new ideas about how we're going to change things, that um, that is put into play. Um, and so those were kind of a couple of the key things that were really important to us as a team. We're also really transparent. We don't have these like secret folders of documents that no one else can access. We basically just use one notion page that has everything on it. And so everyone can see what everyone else is doing all the time. Um, and those things were, we felt as being important for building a team that is, can see what everyone else is doing, can trust each other and who we're all aligned on tackling the same problem. Nice, nice. And um kind of on on hiring, um, you know, I, I think pre-seed's really tough. You know, it's kind of the first time you're you're hiring potentially, you're building out your core team, you have limited resources, limited budget. Um 
and each hire could make a real big difference, good or bad, to the to the you know to the company's um, trajectory. So I just wondered, like you, you touched earlier, and you said the number one and most important thing is like um, yeah, alignment with the mission and just caring about the overall goal, which uh, totally totally get. Um, outside of that, like what did you focus on when bringing these people in? Were you focused on very specific skill sets, or were you focused on like generalists, or just certain kind of mindsets and traits? I would say we were focused on um, outside of the mission alignment. We were focused on um, almost the approach that someone would take to solving a problem, as well as some specific skill sets. Obviously, you know, we needed a someone who knew how to program. So that's sort of a, a skill set that we can't then just say we need a generalist because obviously that's <laughs> yeah. not the best use of the, those resources, but. Um, for some of our team members now, they were hired in for something specifically that maybe they're not necessarily doing. So we have an account manager and an ops person, but their roles are, you know, really, really shared and um, they have very complementary skill sets. And we were really looking for people who um, wanted to do the type of work that we were going to that exists in really small teams, right? At the pre-seed stage. So if you had come from a really corporate background, maybe you're not used to getting your hands dirty. And actually, if you know our washing supplier for whatever reason couldn't do it their job, would you be willing to go and drive over there and, and help them out? Um it's hard to figure out exactly what that type of person is, but um we asked a lot of questions on this is a realistic scenario. How would you handle this type of problem? And if it um, really fit in with the way that we were thinking about it, or if it really, um, we felt that people had the right hands-on approach, then that was pretty important to us because at at its core, we're a, an operating business. And so we can't just have people who are, um, yeah, not willing to, to jump in and, and help out where they can. Totally. And, you know, no matter what the skill set is you're hiring for, like it's tough to hire good people. Um, and the earlier stage you are, the more difficult it is because you're an unknown, you're not proven, um, all, all those yeah. normal you things. You don't so have that wondered, much like, money. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Big, big risk for someone to take on. What, what do you, or what do you feel makes Juni stand out? Like how, how do you attract these people? What makes these people apply to your business over other startups or companies? I would say that this is quite a specific problem that certain people are really, really interested in. And I'll give you one example. One, one person on our team actually wrote her master's thesis on single use cups in cafes. And so obviously that's, that's quite specific. But I think when we, um, when we were hiring, we were looking at, okay, if you were someone who was looking for a job in, this type of company, what would you be searching for? So initially we had, we've been hiring for this ops manager for quite a bit. We had just put operations manager and quite a range of people were applying for that job. But then we figured that if you were looking for a sustainability job, you probably were searching for sustainability in the title. And so we sort of made it a um, more prevalent as part of like the job title. Um, I think we called it something like sustainability operations manager. Obviously, fundamentally, what you're doing is operations manager, but it does need to be sustainable. And you do, we are focused on a sustainability um, focused business, and we do need to do things like 
do a B Corp and then a life cycle assessment that you might have the skill sets for, but really what was most important for us was, um, the interest level. And I think what the, um, the person that I was referring to, you know, she said that she was looking specifically for reuse, reusable packaging type of companies. And those types of opportunities are not super prevalent. So I think making sure that you advertise it in the right way, get, get it out to as many people as possible. We use mostly LinkedIn for that. And, um, and also some referrals and making sure that the thing that you say that you're doing would be the thing that someone who's looking for that type of role, um, would be searching for was, uh, also very helpful for us. Yeah. Really good advice. And I think, yeah, as a recruiter, like I, I, personally focus on like product and tech hiring but i find that um those people are in high demand like typically you know they have good salaries and offer flexible working like all those things are to an extent kind of like default for them so what i'm finding more and more is actually the differentiator for them is that finding that purpose that really aligns with them and strikes a chord with them and yeah we work with a company that does like it's to do with ocean bound plastic and you i speak to people that have grown up in areas of the world where they've seen waste out on the streets being burned and then they hear about what this company is trying to solve and they're like wow that really aligns or yeah if it's um education and you've or, or there's like a childcare company and you've got young children like those things strike a chord and i think it just amplifies that person's ability to to want to do well for you if it's like they're really good at their job but they also really care about what they're going to do at you with your company then that's like an absolute win-win scenario yeah um Awesome. So, um, in terms of yeah, anyone listening that wants to follow the Juni journey, um, or you know, once you've closed off your next funding round, you're hiring again, wants to join the team, like where's best for them to follow you on socials, or, or like who's best to kind of reach out to? Uh, definitely can reach out to me um, at via LinkedIn or on via my email. Uh, can also go on the Juni website and check out. We'll typically post if we have roles or or whatever, but. Um, most of our social media activity does happen on LinkedIn because we're targeting mostly businesses. Um, but yeah, definitely can reach out to me if they are any questions. I'd be happy to share my email as well. You typically do that. Awesome. Cool. Well, Mary, look, thank you for coming on the show and chatting to me today. And um, yeah, wish you all the best. Looking forward to following the Juni journey. Thank you so much, Craig. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.